There are nearly 280,000 unsolved murders across the United States. This constitutes a national crisis, and our country has hundreds of thousands of victims' family members who have no answers and no justice for their loved one. Using advances in technology, crowdsourcing, and good old-fashioned boots-on-the-ground investigative work, follow American Military University's Cold Case Investigative Team as we work to break the case again for one of these families. This podcast contains details and descriptions of actual homicide victims and their injuries, including sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. Previously on Break the Case. I was in Iraq at the time. I remember when she was taking a new job. She was a paralegal there in Port Orchard, Washington. This happened the day before she was moving to her new place. Somebody called it in, the house was on fire, so when they put the fire out, she was stabbed. She had a lot of stuff in her that she never told us a lot. She wanted to be really tough, but yeah, when she got around all the sisters, we talked to her and then she'd cry. But we knew something was going on. And that was the night she was carrying on about, she was afraid of people. I told her, I said, you need to talk to us because something's wrong. It's been haunting my mom. It's and she said, I'll never find out what happened to my daughter before I die. She still got pictures of her hanging on the wall. My name is Jen Buchholz. I'm a forensics and criminal justice professor at American Military University, an Army veteran, and a criminal investigator for my local sheriff's department. I'm George Jared. I'm an investigative journalist and award-winning true crime author. After talking with Linda's sister, Cindy, and her son, Mike, Jen and I took a deeper dive into the case. We had gleaned information about Linda's personality, her lifestyle, and the circumstances surrounding her murder, but we had a lot more work to do. We started where we always do, finding any and all media coverage of the case through the years, scrutinizing documents provided by the victim's family, and obtaining the autopsy report. It took a month or two for certain official requests to be processed and for us to compile all of this information. After doing so, George and I got on a call to discuss the facts of Linda's case and what we knew so far to be true. So how old was she when she was killed? What was her birth date? Linda was born on January 21st, 1961, and she died in April of 2008. So at her time of death, Linda was 47 years old. Right, and she was a Navy veteran. She'd served for several years in the Navy and ended up in Port Orchard. And so apparently she liked that area enough, and she stayed there for many, many years afterwards until her murder. Yeah, a lot of vets stay in that area, so that's not uncommon. Linda lived alone in a two-bedroom, one-bath rental home on Sydney Avenue in Port Orchard. Yeah, and we don't know her exact time of death yet, but we have a window. So she was either killed late afternoon or into the night of Tuesday, April 29th, 2008, or in the early morning hours of Wednesday, April 30th, like before 3.50 in the morning. So we have about a 12-hour window of death at this point. That's a pretty big window, too. As we investigate this case further, we'll probably pare that down quite a bit. Another aspect was she was found in her master bedroom, stabbed multiple times. We're still trying to sort out the exact number of stab wounds, but what we do know to be true is that she was stabbed way more times than was necessary to actually take her life. And then her killer stayed on site and went to the trouble to set her house on fire. According to Linda's family members and documents that they have, Linda was scheduled to actually move out of her rental house on May 1st. She had signed a lease 
for a nearby townhome. And her sisters actually have the documentation showing that she made the deposit and signed the lease agreement for that. So she was scheduled to move. Whether that has any bearing on her murder, we're not sure yet, but it is a detail that we have to examine. Absolutely. Another detail that we are going to take a deep dive into was she sent a curious email to all of her siblings on Tuesday, the 29th. And what was curious about it is that she sent it to all of them and they were not accustomed to getting an email like this from her. And so it raises some questions and we will definitely get into the content of that email and what some of the implications of it could be later on. Yes, and that email was sent in the very early morning hours. Yeah, it was early morning. Tuesday the 29th. Part of our working on the window of death is the last known sighting or documentation we have of Linda in public so far is on Tuesday afternoon at 2.16 when she made a purchase at her local Safeway grocery store. And that purchase is documented on her bank records. And she made a purchase of items. We don't know what the items were, but her total bill was around $116. So it was something significant. So that's the last known for sure sighting that we have of her, but I'm sure that we're going to narrow down that window as we move through this investigation. And Jen, that is so interesting because it's quite a bit of money for a single person to spend on groceries. 2008, you know, that was, you know, 15 years ago. So that was not an insignificant amount of money to spend. But especially considering she doesn't have kids, she doesn't have a spouse, we don't believe she even actually had a quote-unquote boyfriend at the time. So it'd be interesting to find out, and we will find out somehow, some way, what she bought and why she bought it. Yes, exactly. That is on our to-do list, along with many, many other things. Indeed. After establishing the facts we knew about Linda's case, I wanted to touch base with Melissa Sandberg again, since she had been on our initial call with Cindy and Mike Booker. Hey, Melissa. How you doing? Hi, Jen. I'm good. How are you? I'm pretty good. Thanks. Thanks for taking some time to talk through a little bit of Linda's case with me. You were on some of our initial conversations with her family, and so I wanted to circle back around with you to see what your thoughts are from your perspective. But first, maybe you want to just fill in our listeners on how we met and what your background is and what your interest is in helping with cold cases. Yeah, of course. So we met actually, is it almost a year now ago on the Debbie Sue Williamson case? And I was very fascinated with Debbie's case and helping cold cases in general. And so I reached out to you when you were doing live crowdsourcing, if you will. And then we just started communicating and I was blowing up your phone and asking all of these things. And then we just kind of formed a good relationship. And so I've been at your side ever since. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's been my pleasure. Trust me. (laughs) You can't get rid of me, Jen. Can't get rid of me. That's okay. I'm not trying to. (laughs) You're stuck with me and George now. So (laughs) yes, yes. I wouldn't have it any other way. So You know, I've always been interested in true crime or trying to help solve crimes that have gone cold. I'm a licensed clinical social worker, but I went to school for law enforcement. So I'm a licensed clinical social worker by day and crime solver by night. I have always been fascinated with true crime and finding justice for victims of homicide. Now you work in hospice, which puts you in situations where you're dealing with family members that are in very difficult positions. And 
I think it's absolutely applicable to working with family members of murder victims, don't you? Absolutely. I've been hospice about 17 years, but one of the things that we always do is have difficult conversations about end of life and changes and what's to come. And those are not easy conversations to have. And even though it's a different arena, if you will, having difficult conversations with families is what we have to do working a cold case. You know, we have to ask them to tell us about what they remember about that time when they lost their loved one and the circumstances around that. And that's not easy for family members to do, and we know that. So I'm very comfortable having those conversations. So it really has prepared me for what we're doing now. Yeah, for sure, because I think it's not an aspect of working cases that most people in the public think about. Most people just think, oh, well, we have a murder victim. Let's figure out who the killer is. But the thing is, every murder victim has family members. The cases that we've worked, all of our victims have family members who are still alive, and you want to be empathetic to them, but you also need their help. Right. But unfortunately, in helping them, you re-traumatize them. That's been my experience. Right. Absolutely. And it's one of the things where As I just said, you have to be comfortable with being uncomfortable, if you will. I will say my social work background allows me to ask questions as we're interviewing to get more information. And there's a strategy with that. And so I think that also benefits me in this regard. Yeah, definitely. You have those interview skills that are crucial because as we've seen, I just kind of shudder at some of the questioning techniques that are used or lack of technique that's used, but that is obviously a skill that you have mastered. We were the ones doing research on all the case submissions we got this summer, and Linda's kind of stuck out to all of us, I think. What was it about Linda's case that caught your attention? Do you remember? Yeah. Well, the first thing was that she was in the Navy, Mm -hmm. and she was a veteran, and You being a veteran, Jen, I felt like she deserved better than that, right? She served our country. She was a veteran. The other part of her case was that she was stabbed many times, but also her house was set on fire. The killer took extra time, as we know, to set the house on fire. So it was like, who does that and why Mm -hmm. she's retired from the Navy and living her life and what caused someone to go to these lengths. Yeah. I always look for a case where the killer took extra steps or went above and beyond what was necessary to kill the person Mm because behavioral analysis is one of my strengths. And that's something that I can bring to the table is the analysis of those actions. And I don't need the case file to do that. So you and I were kind of in sync on that aspect. So after we talked to Mike and Cindy, what were your thoughts? I remember you saying you didn't understand why this case was still unsolved. What do you remember about that comment? There's just so much here. For somebody to stab somebody so many times, but it looked like it was a very violent attack. Also, you have the house fire. And so I just didn't understand why it wasn't solved yet because it was a small community. She was well known in that area. And they basically caught the fire before it destroyed everything. Mm -hmm. And so there was the stuff to work with. And I believe there was a lot of people of interest that we were looking at. When I was researching and finding things about Linda's case, it was like, what are they waiting for? What's that one piece that they're missing? Yeah. Despite the house fire, the structure still stood. Yeah. Her body was still intact. Right, right. And was able 
to be fully autopsied. They were able to do a toxicology analysis. We know that. So obviously the fire destroyed some evidence, but it didn't destroy everything. So coming in now from our perspective, there's a lot to work with and a lot of avenues to go down. I felt like this is really a good one for us to look at. Yeah, yeah. I think, yeah, we were on the same page. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts on her lifestyle maybe being a factor in her murder? I mean, she was a single woman. Mm -hmm. She had never been married. She didn't have children. Mm -hmm. She dated around, sounds like a lot, which there's nothing wrong with that. Nope. She had several ex-boyfriends. And I'm not victim shaming at all. People can do whatever they want with their bodies. But Linda, we've been told she liked to drink. She would occasionally use drugs. Do you think her lifestyle played a factor in her murder? I think it did. And not because she did anything wrong. I think that when you look at it from victimology, but also from a social perspective, her lifestyle, unfortunately, brings in a lot of risk factors. So you can do all those things, live your life and nothing happen. But unfortunately, there's bad people in the world, right? And bad people who take advantage of things. So who was in her circle at that time? And what was she doing that someone then decided, I'm going to take her life? And if we didn't look at all those factors, we would be missing the boat. Because maybe it has nothing to do with that. But I think that whoever killed Linda, it was personal. They knew her. We don't have any forced entry into her home. I think she let them in, possibly. But she lived a very freestyle kind of life. And when you do that, the potential or risks, if you will, increase. And we do know that she was on the internet, that she was meeting people from the internet. And you don't ever know who's on the other end of that computer. Mm -hmm. So she was definitely doing things and living her life in a way that made her a potential victim of somebody who took advantage of that. I just want to keep reiterating this, that it doesn't matter what a victim's lifestyle is, nobody deserves to be murdered. Nope. Nobody deserves to be stabbed however many times and then set on fire. Right. But like you said, we have to examine yep. those intimate parts of the victim's life because they will provide clues. Right. And it was somebody who crossed her path in one way or another. So if we don't look at that, she had these different kinds of relationships with men and women and internet dating and possibly having relationships for some money. That's fine. That's what she felt she needed to do. That's how she lived. But that doesn't mean that she caused someone to kill her, right? Exactly. She was doing what she was doing and someone decided... I'm not going to let you do this anymore, or I'm very pissed at you. This crime was very hateful. This person hated her yeah. for some reason, and it has to be personal. If we don't look at how she was living, then I don't think we're ever going to get to what happened. No, I agree. I feel like this was anger-driven, like you said. Yeah. But also, as you said, personal. I mean, it almost had to be somebody that she knew on some level. I don't feel like a stranger who encountered her for the first time and got upset about something would go to this level. Why? Right. It's so, so risky. We also know that Linda was a badass. Yeah. This woman would fight back. She is not somebody that you could just mess with. And no, that was one thing that came across to me with interviewing her family was 
she was very much, you're going to come to me and there's a problem. I'm going to stand up for myself. Yeah. And not to say that any other victims don't fight back. But I think that in this case, we do have some kind of evidence that she was able to fight back. Sometimes victims don't have that ability to because it's a surprise attack. But in this case, I think Linda very much fought back. She was not somebody that you could push over. Totally. She was not a submissive person. I know that's something that came out immediately from talking to her sisters. And we're going to get into the autopsy and her wounds in a later episode, but she had many defensive wounds. So she Mm -hmm. was able to put up a fight for a while. Now, a while, maybe 30 to 60 seconds, but that's still significant Mm -hmm. because the killer was unable to overpower her immediately. Right. And that's a clue. That's a big clue. That is a clue. About the killer. Yeah. Mm -hmm. She was, what, five, six? How tall was she? Yeah, five, six, five, seven. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, Slim. It sounds like she was pretty strong, fairly muscular, and I'm sure that carried over from her Navy career. I agree. And I think that's why we have a lot of violence in her case, because I think that it might have surprised the killer how strong she actually was. Sure. Or how feisty she was. But I wonder if she didn't do damage to the killer. She may have. Was there anybody who went to the hospital? Because I think she probably did some some damage to them, too. I think so, too. And again, that's something we're going to analyze in more detail in a future episode. But the level of defense she was able to put up, it wouldn't surprise me if she was able to injure the killer in some form or fashion. And then on top of that, the killer probably cut themselves. Mm -hmm. So I'm hoping police checked ER records for the days after to see if somebody had to come in and get stitches, either along the crease of their fingers. It depends which way they were holding the knife where the blade was, but the palm of their hand or the crease of their fingers, they could have easily given themselves a really deep cut. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking that may be the reason for this fire. If they cut their hand, they're bleeding all over the place. Yep. And once they finally get her subdued, then they've got this gash that's bleeding heavily. And they probably have to grab a towel or something to try to wrap their hand. My initial impression is that's probably why the fire was started, was to cover their own blood evidence. Because logically, Mm -hmm. you have to know that Linda's house being in a basically a regular neighborhood with neighbors right next door, it's not going to burn to nothing before somebody notices. I found it interesting, too. She was getting ready to move, like, the next day, right, Mm -hmm. out of the house into apartment. If she's planning on moving the next day, what happened Mm -hmm. within that day? I think it's somebody who knew that she was planning on leaving, that her intentions were to move, Mm -hmm. wasn't that pleased about it. Uh Uh-huh. It could have even been a ruse for the killer to get inside her home Mm -hmm. because it sounds like a lot of people knew that she was planning to move. And she also had secured a new job that she was scheduled to start soon after her move. So she was making positive changes for her future. Right. But yeah, maybe the person thought, oh, I can come over there with packing boxes or something, and that'll give me a reason to get inside her home. Could be. I feel like there's more to the story in regards to her personal life. Mm-hmm. and her inner circle of people that would have stopped by. Yeah, that makes total sense to me, too. I think that this was a very good case that we ended up picking. We specifically wanted a case that had never been featured on a podcast, that had not really been in the media, because those victims deserve help, too. It doesn't matter who you are or what you do. 
you deserve that. And so I'm very happy to be able to at least do that for Linda and her family. At least we can get them the coverage and the awareness that they deserve. And then hopefully that's going to bring out the tip or the lead or the piece of evidence or whatever it is that we need to help law enforcement solve it. A lot of people are like, well, we don't really want, you know, to cover somebody who, you know, was bisexual or, you know, doing things for money. And it's like, well, why not? I mean, that's her life, her choice. But at the end of the day, it doesn't mean she deserved to be stabbed and set on fire. So correct. All of that is nonsense to me. And it just makes my blood boil. That was one big reason for sure. We're trying to set that example of all victims need help, Mm -hmm. no matter their lifestyle, no matter their skin color, their gender the choices they make. So yeah, I hope that we are changing that mainstream media viewpoint mm-hmm. and um, having a little bit of influence in that area. Yeah, absolutely. She's a human being. That's all that matters. Melissa, I really appreciate you taking some time today to talk through these initial thought processes that we've had and topics that we want to dive into more in Linda's case. Yeah, of course. I think between you, me and George, We have a lot of skill sets together that we can talk about. Yes, definitely. So, awesome. All right. Take care, Melissa. Bye. Cell phones, computers, vehicle data, security cameras, all digital evidence during the investigation of a crime. Today's investigators have to understand how to analyze and solve modern-day cases. That's why American Military University is on the cutting edge of criminal justice education with its Bachelors of Science in Digital Forensics. Classes are online with monthly program starts. Learn more at amuonline.com forensics. Melissa had provided a lot of valuable insight, and George and I were working on an investigative plan. I have family in Washington, so I called my cousin Mark to touch base with him and see if he had any contacts in the Port Orchard area. Hey, stranger. Hey there. How are you, honey? Good. How are you doing? Yeah, doing good. Am I interrupting you? (laughs) Nope. Timing is perfect. Well, I'll give you a quick lowdown on what we're doing. I don't know if you've followed any other work that me and George have done, but this will uh-huh. be the third cold case that we're going to work on. So I told you that the victim is Linda Malcolm, and she was killed in 2008. Uh-huh. Stabbed, and then her house set on fire. Right now, we're just doing all our stuff in the shadows, like trying to make connections in the local area, trying to get the autopsy report, working with the family, getting a hold of some of Linda's former friends, and figuring out a suspect list before we go public with anything. So... I just thought, if you know people in Port Orchard who'd be willing to chat with me or George, really just about like the town itself, the history, the atmosphere, the crime, whatever, like just to get a better sense from the local residents of how things are there. Right. And if anybody happens to remember this murder, I'd love to hear people's memories, but that's not a requirement. Right. Yeah. So do you want me to compile and just send you a name and phone number list? Yeah. I mean, I would recommend touching base with them just to make sure they're okay chatting with me. I already have. Oh, okay. Because I knew that was it because I didn't want them to get blindsided. Yeah, exactly. A stranger from Colorado calling. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. One of the other guys that I did, he was the one that told me that his ex-wife was a prosecutor for Port Orchard at the time. And I went, Mm -hmm. oh, yeah, she's going to be licking her chomps Mm -hmm. at that one. Yeah, that'd be real interesting. (laughs) Sure. Yeah, that's fine. Whenever you've got time, send me names and numbers and, and I'll start working on getting a hold of them. 
And Perfect. Then, when do you think you're coming up? Month two? I don't know. I mean, we need to get up there. That's what we do. We always get boots on the ground before we go public and uh -huh. try to meet with some people in person behind the scenes and like get a meeting with police and all that. I just, I don't know what time frame is going to make the most sense, so. Yeah, I can start poking around. You just tell me the schedule and we'll work around it. Okay. I'll start teeing up, then what I'll do is I'll just email you a list of names and numbers and who I got, and I actually, one of the guys I raced with also is a retired cop. He might know somebody that worked for the police force back then, too. Sure. Have you ever been to that town? Oh, yeah. One of the tracks we hit a couple times a year is like four minutes from the town. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, the track's actually technically listed Bremerton, but mm -hmm. like if it rains out or we're done, you know, it's minutes away to the bowling alley in the town of Port Orchard. Wow, and in fact, cool. after my dad died, I was actually framing houses in Port Orchard. Oh, really? Okay, mm -hmm. so you are really familiar with it. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very well. It's a cool little town. I've been following some Facebook groups, and it's such a cute, pretty, beautiful town. Like, <laughs> yeah. Like, a couple cool little bars, and, and what's awesome is so our victim, she was a pretty heavy drinker. She had one particular bar that she'd go to a couple times a week, and guess what? It's still there. Same name. <laughs> oh my so that's definitely going to be a place that we go. Because <laughs> it's such a tiny town. I know people there remember this and knew her. There's got to be. So mm -hmm. that's what we'll work on. Yeah, one of the first couples, the one that I said was born and raised there, the husband and the wife came in over in, I think, 86 or 87. But she was actually a bartender in Port Orchard as well. Now, it would be really funny if she was a bartender at that bar. Perfect. That really <laughs> hilarious. <laughs> hey, even if she was at a different bar, she might remember this. Because it was a big deal when it happened. And, you know, there's not very many homicides there. So she might have no. some good insight. And one of my sleepless nights, I Googled up the name, and I vaguely remember when that came out. And then some of the articles, there was a bunch, all the murders mm -hmm. in that area for like a three, four-year period were all stabbings. Mm -hmm. They had a big spike in them or something. You know, just what I read in whatever newspaper articles came yeah, out. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Well, okay. someone in that town knows. We're going to find them, so. Good. Get them. <laughs> yep. All right. That'd be good to see you, hon. Yeah, I'll, I'll let you know. We'll keep in touch, and I really appreciate your help. Oh, anytime. Happy to help. All right. Okay. Enjoy your Love Saturday. You, Take care. Yep. You too. Bye-bye. I knew Mark was going to be a valuable resource based on his deep roots and connections to the Pacific Northwest. I was also excited after meeting up with Mike, who lived close to me. He had recently visited his mom, Cindy, and brought back a box of paperwork for me to look through. I called George to share the news. Hey, George. Hey, what's going on? I'm back home. With your gigantic box? Yeah, I briefly went through it. Probably 80% of it is like bank statements and, you know, they had to go to probate court trying to get her estate settled and most of it's related to that kind of stuff. But mm -hmm. that'll still be helpful. Like we can get an idea of her financial situation at least. Mm -hmm. And there are some photos. They had like a little family gathering out front of the burnt house. Somebody took a bunch of photos, and so in that batch of photos, there's a few photos of the burnt house from the outside, which will be helpful for your arson guy, I think. Mm -hmm. Nothing on the inside. But, I mean, this is a pretty significant fire. That car in the carport, like, the tires on the driver's side are melted. So, oh, wow. Yeah, and there's a lot of smoke damage coming out the windows of the house. An arson expert will be able to explain it way better. 
So, I mean, that will be helpful. Have the death certificate. A couple emails that Cindy exchanged with the original detective. And in one of them, this is in July of 2008, he says, we're waiting on results from forensic testing. So that's good. They must have mm -hmm. something. <laughs> right. Then it just drops off. Like, there's just some communications between them that summer that are brief, and then there's no more. And then there's a really nice, like, 6x9-ish size photo of Linda, which will be great. Like, good quality. Mm -hmm. So that'll be good for us to use for her Facebook page and stuff. I'll tell you one thing that we need to do pretty quickly, probably within this month, is we need to figure out who she was friends with. Yeah. We got to figure out who knew her. Yeah. And start with that. We probably need to go ahead and try to track down any people who wrote any of the stories yep. about her case. Yep. I guess we need to make a list of all the stories that we can find on it and just start... Yep. Trying to track down those reporters and see if there's anybody who knows more. I'll get on newspapers.com this week and see what's there. And I'll check Ancestry, of course. Yeah, and I'll just start downloading everything I can find. And then I'll have a share folder for us, of course. Excellent. Well, sounds like we're making some minor progress, at least. Yeah, it's a start. Next time on Break the Case. I didn't know what she was going through, but I feel like maybe I should have known more. I should have known more about her life, because we know so little. I think she was just trying to get by the best way she knew to get by, without a job. But I imagine Linda, I'm sure she fought, but I'm sure she suffered too. I've been over and over and over in my head ever since things happened to her. Yeah, the only thing that was really weird is some of the things that didn't burn that should have. We could never find her phone or her computer. I guess she had a laptop that was never found. I mean, even melted, you'd think you'd find it. I'm just so glad that you guys are on it. And we get to know a lot more about it than before. Every year, we never heal, you know? And yes. so it's good for us, actually. This podcast is brought to you by American Military University. Narrated and produced by Jen Buchholz with co-host and investigative journalist George Jared. Senior producers Leishan Kranick, Andy Crow, and Kristen Kretzler with support from Lisa Tannis. Sound engineering and editing by Harvest Creative Services. Subscribe to Break the Case on iHeartRadio, Google, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.